is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything, music, life, love, the arts, and of course, work, because it's such an important part of our lives. And that leads us also sometimes to talk about public policy, but only as it impacts workers and business owners. And this story goes to, well, the roots of a real problem. And I say roots because we're talking about hair. And actually the roots of a nation here. And the idea that men and women should be able to make a living free from excessive government interference. Why am I talking about hair? Tennessee recently passed a law that requires a license to do as a job what most of us do every day. We grow up doing it and sometimes do it for our children and our aging parents. But now this job requires a cosmetology license, which costs $35,000. And that job is washing hair. Occupational licensing, by the way, is what we're going to be talking about. But before we get into that, I wanted to join, have you join us, Tammy. Tammy Pritchard, a full-time police officer who is suing the state of Tennessee to be able to wash hair part-time because she can't afford to get that aforementioned license. Tammy, thanks for joining us. Hi, how you doing today? I'm very good, and how are you? All right. Tammy, tell me a little bit about your life, your family, and your childhood before we get into this seemingly crazy story about you in the state of Tennessee. Uh, well, I was a, I started out um, like in the beauty shop, working like with my sister and her friends. Um, my sister was a natural health care, but she had friends that was cosmetologists, so I would go in and help them during the summer and, you know, during school times when I get out of school, washing hair um, for friends, you know, to just make a little extra money. And then it also helped the beauticians um, where they could just, you know, go on and continue to do uh, other clients. So that was a little a good income for, you know, a teenager like me, young teenager. And then after that, I, you know, became a young parent, a young mother um, with three sons. So they even helped me as that. And then doing that, shampooing, and then I did college part-time and still raising my three sons. So it, it really, it was a great income. It was a great income. And, you know, you're being a, a, a little humble here. Your sister, by the way, Deborah Nuttall, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, she, mm-hmm. she pioneered the natural hair movement for African-American right. women and has a natural hairstyling salon as well. I mean, this is something that's been in your blood, your DNA, and your family yes. for a very yes. long time. For years, for years. For, I can say, um, my oldest son is going to be 20. Well, I'm going to go back to her oldest child. Her oldest child like 30-something years old, so she was doing that way even before she had her first child so we've been doing it for uh, 30 some years or plus yeah this is what you do and you know it's interesting you you know you obviously you said that washing hair you know helps pay some bills but you know we're talking about some important bills tammy like covering your health care expenses yes Mm -hmm. and it helped me take care of my three sons i I was able to get my first little car it helped me with being a young parent and um a young lady to um to go through school, uh, college. So it helped. It was a great, it did a great deal for me and a lot of other young friends that I know that wanted to be beauticians, that it helped them also. So when they came in with that law, it, it really hurt a lot of us. And, and my thing was, 
They wanted us to say, get off of welfare. They wanted the young women off welfare, but you come in and take from us and put us back on welfare. Yeah, and, and, and you, I, you, you, uh, you, you have this happen to you, and, and what's your turn? What do you do next? What, tell us the story. So the state says you can't do this anymore. Where do you get the gumption to sue the state? How did you get to that? And by the way, congratulations for having the courage to do that, Tammy. Well, well, I um, I was really upset about it, and I just sat back and thought about it. And me and my sister, we was, and she was, you know, upset about it. And so we sent out letters, and we, you know, we talked, went up to the board, and we talked to the board and everything. And they still like it was just none and board that they didn't hear us. And fortunately, God heard our cry, and He sent um, the Beacon Center to go and talk to someone else, and they gave my sister name. And then my sister gave my name. And so that's how we ended up getting with the Beacon Center that they, and they said that they would help us. So that's how we end up. And we'll be talking, uh, we'll be talking to uh, Braden Busek uh, from the Beacon Center in the next segment. We wanted to talk to the uh, legal aspect of this, but before we did that, Tammy, we wanted to dig into the personal aspect because the personal, mm-hmm. sadly here, became the legal through no fault of your own. So let's talk about right. the penalty. It turns out that penalty, I, I almost can't believe I'm going to read this sentence, penalty for shampooing without a license is six months in jail or a $500 fine, Tammy. And by the way, we know you're not going to prison, but $500 for each offense? Right. This this right. pretty much is a deterrent to you trying to do your job, right? And, and so there still is a lot of people that, especially like you had like a lot of young girls doing that in the shop helping their aunties. So if you come in and you said give them six months, like me, I was a college student. It, say if I was, was still would have been doing it, you would have messed up my college career because you're gonna send me to jail just because I was washing hair. I'm going to go to jail or I'm going to have to pay $500. And by the way, uh, you know, in my notes here, there's no school in Tennessee which offers classes in shampooing. At all. At all. Well, this is, you know, Tammy, thank you for doing what you did. Thank you for taking this case and making it public, being a voice for this case, fighting for your rights. And, you know, this is just one of those things and one of those stories where you just go, there's got to be a reason and so when we come back mm-hmm. on the other side of this break, oh my goodness, there's got to be a reason, right? Well, we're going to talk. Yes, we do. Well, we're going to talk to Braden, Braden Busek from the Beacon Center of Tennessee. And he's going to walk us through what's really going on with this law, why it came into being, and why he and the folks at the Beacon Center are standing up and fighting in the public square and in the courts for Tammy and so many of the women, and it is mostly women, and it's mostly African-American women this is attacking, and a lot of low-income women. And we're going to get some answers from Braden Busek and the fine work they're doing over at the Beacon Center of Tennessee. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we just heard a story that seems pretty un-American, actually. Tammy Pritchard being denied her opportunity to wash hair, something she and her family know a lot about, something she'd been doing all her life, and I can only assume there weren't customer complaints from her hair washing that caused the government to come in here and do this. And I can't imagine that there was any mass uh, a, a complaint to the federal government or the state government about this mass crisis with hair washers needing to be regulated. And so joining us to talk about this and where this sprang from, well, we had to bring on Braden Busek from the Beacon Center of Tennessee, whose tagline is empowering Tennesseans to take control of their own lives and their own vision of the American dream. And we love that tagline. Thanks so much for joining us, Braden. It's my pleasure, Lee. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Uh, you know, what's going on here? It, just give us an idea of where this law was coming from, because it could not have possibly come. And I, I know I, I'm not a betting man, but I would bet everything I own that this did not come from complaints from civilians about bad hair washing. If it did, we have found no evidence of it. Um, we've done <clears throat> a good bit of research into uh, trying to ascertain the actual harm that unlicensed shampooing could pose to consumers, and we can find minimal evidence, uh, really debatably no evidence, um, that this was in any way a harm to consumers. It really is, takes place against a backdrop of uh, a larger issue, which is the scourge of uh, occupational licensure requirements, um, which is literally permission from the government just to work. The numbers on it are pretty staggering. In the 1950s, there was something like 1 in 20 Americans needed a license to work. Those tended to take place in fields like doctor, dentist, lawyer, accountant, and so on. But in 2016, the number is closer to, I think it's 1 in 3 or 1 in 5. It's, it's down in that area. Um, and this despite the fact that more Americans work in fields that are service-oriented and ostensibly should be safer. Right. And, and so then the question comes... You know, where does this law come from? And I can, I can think of two reasons, Brayden, and, and let's spend some time on both of them. The first could be it's a straight revenue play. Um, the, the state needs the money. It could also be an anti-competitive play. Somebody who is in a certain business wants to block other people from competing with them, so they raise the barriers to entry. And what we mean by that, that's economic speak for saying we're making it too expensive for you to compete with us by only allowing a price tag that some bigger business could absorb. Talk about those two possibilities, and which one do you think is at work, or both? Well, uh, we allege that both of them are at work, um, and you know, you mentioned it before about the schools. You know, uh, the, if you study the licensure regime close up, you'll see that the state goes to great lengths to regulate uh, and specify that you have to get a license. It even tells the students right down to the very kind of kit that they need to buy from the schools. But as far as regulating the actual curriculum of the schools or requiring that a school teach the school teach the curriculum, they don't pre- appear to be particularly concerned about that. Um, so you can easily come away with the impression that uh, all of this is about generating fees for uh, the state itself and the schools. Um, and to your other point, which has to do about protecting uh, consumers, yes, I mean, economic protectionism is uh, unfortunately something that we allege is afoot afoot here. Um, The evidence of it is uh, all over the place. Um, I I think most people agree that this is something that their children do safely at home, um, is shampoo their own hair. There's really not a valid safety reason. 
but it is a way to deliver benefits to existing market participants. Um, I think an interesting statistic uh, that we uncovered is the Bureau of Labor actually keeps wage statistics for the shampooing field. And um, would you care to guess which two cities in America have the highest uh, wages per hour for shampooing? Um, Nashville and Memphis. Bingo. How about that? Um, I'm pretty good, huh? Yeah, you are. Uh, so the average per hourly wage for washing hair in Tennessee is $15 an hour. Um, and the next highest state, according to the Bureau of Labor, is New Jersey, and it's in the $10 range. Wow. And let's, let's think about or talk about this, this vague licensing requirement. Uh, we have here a couple of the things that you're going to get in the, three, the 300 hours of instruction. 300 hours of instruction. They want to have you learn about the theory and practice of shampooing. They want classes in draping a client in a clean towel, brushing hair in one-inch segments, and how to clean up blood, how to answer a phone properly, how to order a product, the composition of shampoos, and OSHA requirements. This is, this is almost Stalinistic, isn't it? Uh, Stalinistic is one term. Uh, to me, the, I think it just looks like pure busy work. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to come up with 300 hours of curriculum relevant to shampooing. I mean, it's an expression, right? Lather, rinse, repeat. Yep. <laughs> um, that's, that's all it is. And we all do it safely to ourselves or, in many cases, a family member throughout the, our lives. Um, so, I mean, you know, if you think about it, the vast majority of that list actually has nothing to do with shampooing. You know, like, like Tammy was telling you, I mean, she just wants to wash hair. She doesn't care about answering the phone or running a store. Why does she have to know how to order product, let alone OSHA regulations? Um, it's just busy work designed to give students. Do the schools have their own lobbyists pushing this? Because I've got to think that this, I'm thinking of interested parties. Who benefits, who loses? I'm always thinking about winners and losers when the government gets involved. Because every time they do, they create a winner and a loser. Who, we know who the loser is. Who's the winner? Well, as it currently stands, since it is so difficult to become a shampooer, the big beneficiaries are, of course, people who have the license now, and furthermore, cosmetologists themselves, um, because cosmetologists are allowed to wash hair. And if shampooers could do that practice standing alone, that would eat into the profits of licensed cosmetologists. I think Tammy told me at one point in time, and I, I'd want to ask her, but I think she said that working part-time as a shampooer, in a salon, uh, she would get about $20 a hair wash um, of what the cosmetologist brought in for the service as a whole. That's really not bad money. No. Um, not bad at all. A lot of Americans would be nodding going, I'll take that, especially a lot of stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads. I mean, you're going, sure. wow, that's nice. It's part-time. I get to meet people. I, I get to have some nice conversations. Nice atmosphere. Um, it's always a friendly atmosphere. Every time I go to the barbershop, I go, what a nice place to have a nice conversation. A nice, decent place to have a part-time job. Tell us about the lawsuit against the state of Tennessee. What are you suing for, and how's it going? Uh, well, we've alleged that uh, a number of allegations. We've alleged, first and foremost, that uh, this violates ten- the right of Tennesseans to uh, pursue e- what's called economic liberty, that the pursuit of the American dream is, in fact, a constitutional right. You have a right to choose and select your career. Uh, I personally would tell you I think that the founders would consider it unrecognizable that in a court of law something all like the things that are recognized as constitutional rights, anything from abortion to uh, same-sex marriage to uh, 
child porno- virtual child pornography, lap dances, all of those things are, according to the courts, constitutionally protected. Yet if you say, I want to have and hold a good job, that's not accorded constitutional significance. And I think that's just completely upside down. Um, and so we allege that this violates her constitutional right to economic liberty. Uh, separately, we also allege Tennessee's got a really interesting constitutional provision. It's called an anti-monopolies provision, and it's in our equivalent of the Bill of Rights. But what it reads is, and get this, uh, monopolies and perpetuities are contrary to the genius of a free state and shall not be allowed. Wow, be still my heart. Love it. Yep, that, that's written in our Constitution. Now, our courts haven't always behaved that that's in our Constitution, um, and it doesn't get a whole lot of attention. But really, this is a state-sanctioned monopoly. Nobody else can do it unless you have the license, and currently it's difficult, if not impossible, to get that license. Um, and uh, you, you may, as you may or may not know, last year, about a year ago, the Supreme Court issued, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an opinion dinging the North Carolina Dental Board for characterizing teeth whitening as a practice of dental medicine. And in ruling, they observed that the board of uh, dentists was comprised almost exclusively of dentists. And they said that that's really not state action. What you've got there is anti-competitive activity. And for purposes of the Sherman Antitrust Act, you can't say claim state immunity. You're not acting as a state. You're just acting in an anti-competitive fashion. You bet. and we think that precedent is directly applicable here. The only difference being is this is a constitutional right in Tennessee. Well, good good luck with this. And with uh, 30 seconds left or so, Tammy, if you were to be able to talk to the governor face-to-face, what would you ask him and why, real quickly? I would ask them why did they uh, make that a law to um, take shampoo, um, make shampoo go uh, do uh, 300 hours. And I want to know why, why did you take that from us that something that was helping us uh, economically um, to be able to take care of our families, and it was a it was a, a great I mean a good living. It wasn't bad, you know. And I wanted to know why would they take that from us? Well, we're going to ask him. Actually, we're going to take this clip and we're going to call him up, and we're going to ask him. And thanks so much for what you do, Tammy, and what you're doing, and Braden and the folks at the Beacon Center. Thanks for fighting the fight, not only for Tammy, but for countless other women and men who simply want to be able to make a living without the encumbrance of the state throwing senseless rules and regulations at them. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. To hear all of these stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That is OurAmericanNetwork.org.
And that, of course, is our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. And by the way, we played the whole thing because you have to. And by the way, we knew you wouldn't turn it off. And we played that for you in its entirety because on this day in history, the Star Spangled Banner was adopted as the American national anthem in 1931. Throughout the 19th century, the Star Spangled Banner was regarded as the national anthem by most branches of the U.S. Armed Forces, but it was not until 1916 and the signing of an executive order by President Woodrow Wilson that it was formally designated as such. And then in March of 1931, Congress passed an act confirming Wilson's presidential order, and on this day in history in 1931, President Hoover signed it into law. There are a few other notes on this day in American history as it relates to music that cannot go without mention. Here's Jesse with the rundown. This day in music history, 1931, the first jazz single to sell a million copies was recorded. It was Minnie the Moocher by Cab Calloway. Most famous for its nonsensical ad-libbed scat that we've all heard before. Calloway would have the audience participate by repeating each scat phrase in a form of call and response. Eventually, Calloway's phrases would become so long and complex that the audience would laugh at their own failed attempts to repeat them. This day in music history, 1986, the Metallica album Master of Puppets was released. The third studio album by the heavy metal band peaked at number 29 on the Billboard 200 and became the first thrash metal album to be certified platinum. When Metallica played two shows in China in 2013, the Chinese government told them not to play the song, perhaps not wanting to harbor unrest with lyrics about being controlled by a greater entity. The band complied, although Kirk Hammett made sure to play the riff during their sets. This day in music history, 1998, Madonna's album Ray of Light was released in the U.S., a departure from her previous work. Ray of Light is an electronica dance and techno-pop album, which incorporates several genres, including ambient, trip-hop, and house music. Ray of Light has sold more than 16 million copies worldwide. The album actually gave Madonna her first musical Grammy of her career, as previously she had only won in the video category. This day in music history, this is Our American Stories. That was terrific, Jesse. We love them. Keep them coming. And I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm dancing right now. I can't help myself. <laughs> and now it's time for a little transition, and hopefully not too shocking, but we love talking about random acts of kindness here on Our American Stories. And today we bring you a random act of kindness story from the most unpleasant of circumstances, a story from Francine Christophe, a Holocaust survivor from France. During the war, well, she and her family were Jewish. They were put in Bergen-Belsen, a Nazi concentration camp, where overcrowding, lack of food, and poor sanitation killed more than 35,000 people in the first few months of 1945. But even in this dark place, kindness overrode self-preservation. Here's Faith translating Francine's story. Je m'appelle Francine... My name is Francine Christophe. I was born on August 18th, 1933. 1933 was the year Hitler took power. Look, this is my star. I had to wear it on my chest, of course, like all Jews. 
It's big, isn't it? Especially for a child. That was when I was only eight years old. Now, when I was at Bergen Belsen camp, an amazing thing happened. Let me remind you that as the child of prisoners of war, we were privileged. We were permitted to bring a little something from France. A little bag with two or three small items. One woman brought chocolate, another sugar, and a third a handful of rice. My mom had packed two little pieces of chocolate. She said to me, We'll keep this for a day when I see you've collapsed completely and really need help. I'll give this chocolate to you and you'll feel better. One of the women in prison with us was pregnant. You couldn't even tell. She was so skinny. But the day came and she went into labor. And then she went to the camp hospital with my mom and the barracks chief. But before they left, my mom said, Do you remember that chocolate that I was saving for you? Yes, mama. How do you feel? Fine, mama. I'll be okay. Well then... If it is all right with you, I'd like to bring your chocolate to this lady, our friend Helene. Giving birth here will be hard, and she may die. If I give her the chocolate, it may help her. Yes, Mama, go ahead. Helene gave birth to a baby, a tiny little feeble thing. She ate the chocolate, and she didn't die. She then came back to the barracks, and the baby never cried. She didn't even wail. Six months later, the camp was liberated, and when they unwrapped the baby's rags, the baby screamed. That was when she was born. We took her back to France, a puny little thing for six months. Then a few years ago, my daughter asked me, Mama, if you deportees had had psychologists or psychiatrists when you returned, maybe it would have been easier for you. I replied, undoubtedly, but we didn't have them. No one thought of mental illness. But you gave me a good idea. We'll have a lecture on the topic. So I organized the lecture on the theme, if the survivors of the concentration camps had had counseling in 1945, what would have happened? The lecture drew a crowd. Elderly survivors, historians, and many psychologists, psychiatrists, and psychotherapists. Many ideas emerged, and it was excellent. Then, a woman came to the podium and said, I live in Marseille, where I'm a psychiatrist. And before I deliver my talk, I have something for Francine Christophe. In other words, me. She then reached into her pocket and pulled out a piece of chocolate. She gave it to me, and she said, I'm... Baby. And that's a beautiful story, Faith, and that's what we do here in Our American Stories, and particularly when it comes to the Holocaust and the connection between America and Israel forged back then, before there was the state of Israel, the connection between America and the Jews. By the way, that particular camp was freed by British troops, by the way, in April 15, 1945. British soldiers found 60,000 Starving, almost dead Jews, 13,000 dead bodies left unburied. And American GIs, as you remember from our hour with Dick Winters, liberated so many of the other camps. 
And again, that connection between America and the Jewish people forever forged in Europe in 1945 and during World War II. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and from time to time our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling so good so spiritually good that we must take the time to sit back close our eyes and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid, believed to be built around 2500 BC, it was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America, to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas, to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, A dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop pooty from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger. You had me at hello. Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories. And what you just heard is, it's completely true. Uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and 
Uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely. The idea of having just one movie to watch, I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years. Um, and you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement of my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in uh, in media, and all of us in the group are are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So, um, yeah, over 14,000 copies. We, we, hope to, we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour, and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space there. I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest, 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie, and where did they even come from? 
So the Jones wires was it was really just the uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media. I think the, there there are many many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other um, the other footage that we use for for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000-plus copies of Jerry Maguire and VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture. Um, we are working with a team of, of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important <laughs> for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, We've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them, and the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so, and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So, this is like the announcement of the pyramid, we're raising awareness, we're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's, and uh, hopefully, it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into the into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry Maguire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything is terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, then they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer, a.k.a. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com 
where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm, I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's myself. <laughs> so is the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is Our American Stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. <laughs> A lot more of them. American stories, and we tell a lot of stories about our culture, and a few about policy, where it directly affects you and your families. Today, we're going to combine the two with Ashley McGuire, author of Sex Scandal. Her book is all about the culture and political drive to abolish male and female. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. And before we get into the stories and the takeaways in your book, just for a, minute, for, for a minute, talk about your life and how you got to this book. I don't think people drift into these things. I think inevitably, and I don't know about you, but I just think that sometimes we have a calling for some things that we might not know about. Talk about how you got to this book in particular. Well, sure. I mean, I think, you know, you're about stories. And actually, my sort of trajectory to this book is its own story. I, um, I grew up in Colorado Springs and wound up in Boston going to Tufts University and was very sort of seduced by a lot of things about feminism um, and really sort of had an eye-opening experience at Tufts, um, especially, you know, the way, just the sort of hypersexual nature of the campus. You know, in the book I talk about um, every year on Valentine's Day, they would host a sex fair. Um, which was totally unromantic. And, you know, it's sort of funny, here we are, you know, now 10 years later, I see, it seems like every other Valentine's Day, um, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, like the latest episode or latest, you know, version of that movie comes out. So I could see that some, some something was happening where um, romance was drifting away from from sexuality. And really what I saw was a lot of objectification of women. And I sort of felt like actually a lot of the things they were teaching me at school were really sort of empowering the men to treat women badly. So I wound up writing for the school newspaper. I wrote about the sex fair, really realized I touched a nerve on that. And that led me when I graduated to keep writing on this topic. I wrote for the Wall Street Journal about um, the sort of degrading climate for women on college campuses um, and how a lot of that is actually being billed under feminism. And, you know, I just, I have kind of stayed on the trajectory of writing about gender and feminism. And I think what we're seeing play out now with all this gender theory, um, I think is very much, you can trace that back to um, what I started writing about and even, you know, long before that, the sort of second wave feminism. Yeah, and let's talk about that first wave, because I think when we hear the word feminism, Ashley, uh, you know, I think there are at least two waves of feminism. I mean, first, you've got the suffragette movement, which gives mm-hmm. the women the right to vote. And, I, I, you know, I'm not sure what era of man would be against that. 
Um, and then and then came the second wave, the Betty Friedan's uh, pushing out women's equality, women getting out of the home if they chose to, and getting into the workplace. Um, talk about this, I, w- I would call it almost a 3.0 version, if you'd like. Uh, and how is that different from the 2.0 and the 1.0? Well, you know, if anything, I would say there's a big giant question mark over the 3.0 because I think feminism is in a state of crisis. I think... Um, you know, first of all, you've got the fact that, you know, four or five different polls and studies have found that, you know, pretty much like one in five Americans now consider themselves a feminist. So people don't really even um, associate themselves with the word anymore. And I think it's because um, it doesn't really have a clear meaning anymore. You know, you have celebrities like Beyonce who... Um, they call themselves feminism. They carry the feminism torch. But then I think other women who call themselves feminists are sort of uncomfortable with um, a woman who's very sort of, you know, allows herself to be uh, used in a sort of graphically sexual way to make money. Um, a lot of her lyrics portray and glamorize sexual violence. And then you've got other women. You know, I think we saw this with the Women's March who are, you know, pro-life, consider themselves feminists, but don't see a place for themselves um, in the sort of more mainstream feminist movement, if you will. But I think somewhere along the way, from the second wave feminism to where we are now, I think we got onto a path where um, feminism came to mean that women being equal with men meant being like men, that we have to be identical to men in order to be equal to men. I think biologically and reproductively we've seen that with contraception and abortion. Um, I think, you know, with the whole work-life balance, mommy wars, this idea that women and men are only equal in marriage if, you know, they bring home the same paycheck and split the chores 50-50. And I think, you know, the younger generation of women... I'm a young mom, are sort of like, I'm not interested in that. And in fact, you know, Pew keeps finding that um, the overwhelming majority of women who have children under age 18 actually either want part-time or no work at all. So this idea that we're only empowered if we're working full-time is just not, you know, it's A, it's not what women want. Um, And it's just sort of, I think women are finding themselves dissatisfied with where feminism has brought them today. I think that's fair. I mean, in the end, it was started as a choice. You know, we Mm -hmm. want women to be able to choose work and or choose home. And now so many women, my wife, who is a great paralegal, loved trying cases. But right now, she just doesn't even want to do it part time. Her mother was a single mom. She was never there for her kids. She tried her best. My wife wants to be there for her kids. And she's going to be, and her child. And so she's one of those classic women who says, I'm, I'm not, you know, thank you, feminism, for giving me these options, but close the doors. We're there. And if anything, my wife's thinking about how to help uh, raise up better boys because she's worried about my little girl and her little girl finding a quality man to marry. So when we come back, we're going to be rejoined by Ashley McGuire, author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Ashley McGuire, author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. And Ashley, you just heard about my bride, and I I really do think, I mean, she's really grateful for a lot of the work the feminists did in 1.0. She said, look, they, they paved the way, we now have our choices, but we often talk about the boys. I mean, the number of boys in prison, the number of the boys on drugs, the number of boys even graduating from four-year colleges on time. I mean, the women are now doing better than the boys. Um, is, that a, is that a worry you hear about from a lot of women and a lot of moms? Yeah, and, you know, I think just in general, there's sort of uh, there's these tandem wars on masculinity and femininity. On the one hand, I think... You know, men, I, I focus mostly on women in the book because I'm a woman and that's yep. sort of my platform or whatever. But, um, and a lot of others have written, I think, very astutely about the war on boys, the war on men. Um, but, you know, I think it's a hard time to be a man. I talk about this in the book that you can't, they can't really win. I mean, if they, chivalry is sort of uh, interpreted as condescending, patronizing, or sexist. But then if they don't do the chivalrous thing, I mean, at the same time, women are still sort of expecting that behavior. And when they don't get it, then the men are chauvinists. And, you know, you, I, I constantly hear these sort of laughable or silly-seeming examples, but I think it's very much intertwined with this. On Valentine's Day this year, I was in my car, and I heard a story about a woman who went on a date with a man. I guess it didn't go well. And he sent her a bill. <laughs> but, you know... On the, on the other hand, you have men being told to treat women exactly like men um, and not to treat them any differently. And I I don't think that's really a world women want to be living in. And then on the other hand, there's I, I genuinely believe a true war on femininity, that femininity is framed as weakness, um, whether it's, you know, this framing of professions that women gravitate towards as somehow, you know, um, like nursing or or other professions that involve a lot of caregiving, those are sort of written off as um, not as valuable. And, and you know, instead we're hearing, we're, we're talking about how can we get more women into combat roles instead of sort of appreciating the roles that women do. And this is not to say that there's women who are CEOs and, you know, men who are nurses, but um, and just sort of write the writing off of motherhood and even, I mean, I talk in the book about the fact that it's now become almost politically incorrect to talk about women um, as being mothers. You know, I give the example in the book of the Midwives Alliance of North America actually adopting the phrase birthing individual to talk about moms. And, you know, that sounds sort of silly. You might laugh. But then the week my book came out, the British Medical Association came out and said, Instead of using the phrase expectant mother, you should use the phrase pregnant people. And so we've seen, we're seeing a sort of androgynous push on both sexes, and I think it doesn't serve either sex well at all. Now, and let's get down to the word sex. And by that, you, of course, mean gender. 
and talk about what those terms have always meant and what's going on with the redefinition of these terms. Sure. So I think this is a really important part of the debate. I mean, um, it sort of boils down to this. Sex, um, when we're talking about male and female, the categories of male and female, means something. It has a concrete definition. It means male or female as determined by your DNA, your chromosomes, your genitalia. So the end. <laughs> um, and that is the that is the term that the medical field uses, the field of psychology uses, um, you know, when you're checking the box with TSA, um, because that actually does have a distinct and clear-cut meaning. Gender doesn't really mean anything. I mean, we started to use this word um, in the 50, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, it, I mean, the word itself just means category, but increasingly we're seeing people use that to define themselves really any way that they want. And it's a problematic word because... Because it doesn't mean anything, it sort of introduces an element of anarchy into the debate. I mean, and, you know, it, this is not an insignificant um, point here. I mean, what you saw last year, for example, with with the Obama administration's um, sort of controversial Title IX mandate, they actually said you can't discriminate on the basis of gender. So they replaced the word sex with gender. And I think it led to just a tidal wave of confusion um, which was a big part of why the Trump administration rescinded the mandate. They actually said in their in their statement that part of their concern was how confusing it was because what does gender mean? Yeah, and, and, it, and, it, and it had been put together, Title IX, to correct imbalances with women and get women ahead. And now it, it's totally upended and sending all kinds of new signals to this mass, mass uh, bureaucracy that is all the college admissions and, and so much more and 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 where do you think this where do you think this comes from, Ashley? Where where is this gender push coming? Who who's pushing it, and what do you think's behind it? Well, to go back to the second wave feminists, I think in the during the sexual revolution, second wave feminism, there was a strong push to argue that our maleness and femaleness are social constructs, and that that's where you started to see the push for the word gender instead of sex trying to sort of dilute the importance of sex and say, really, that's just sort of arbitrary biological randomness. Um, but what really matters is gender, which are these socialized conditions. You know, you know, the men really invented this to keep women down. And if we can just sort of get rid of these social distinctions, um, then we will have achieved equality. And I think we're seeing that still sort of arc through to today, um, where you have sort of high-level policymakers, sort of elite thinkers in you know, all the different publications and really in the universities. I think this is still very much entrenched in the universities, um, this idea that um, really sex is not a valid category, but that gender, we should be talking about gender, and that we have all these social constructs. Um, and the problem is that, you know, when you take that to its logical extreme, you get to where we are today, where suddenly, you know, what? how do you handle the issue of, say, sports? And you made a great point about the fact that Title IX was actually written to correct um, for discrimination against women and to create opportunities for women that didn't previously exist. And suddenly you're seeing, I, I document this extensively in my book, you're seeing 
issues, you know, you're seeing, like, boys who self-identify as boys playing on girls' sports teams and athletic institutions and courts are being told they can't actually make any distinction between the sexes, um, that that's the sexist thing to do to make the distinction. So their hands are sort of tied when it comes to, you know, boys and gir- on girls' teams, um, you know, dorm rooms, housing of the sexes together, co-ed, unisex, bathrooms, locker rooms. That's sort of where we are now as a result. And, Ashley, it's, it's, uh, it's something I think a lot of parents just don't know about, too, because this happens under the radar. So as your kids go into school and they go into other places, the kids might not necessarily even come back to the parents and tell them what's actually going on, because I don't necessarily know that they know what's going on, do they? I don't think so, and I think a big part of that stems from the confusion over sex and gender. Um, you know, I think a lot of people didn't realize what was so significant about the Obama administration's, um, what they call it, the Dear Colleague Letter, which told every academic institution that in any way got federal money um, that they could not discriminate based on gender when it came to housing, you know, locker rooms, athletics, pronouns. And everybody's sort of like, well, how is that different than what we already have? But it's hugely different if, you know, you're rewriting, if, if you're basically writing sex out of the laws. But no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book, for example, about how many schools are sort of quietly changing their curriculum to teach really young kids um, things like gender is a fluid spectrum. And what's sort of insidious is that often what they try to do is put this curriculum into the mandatory classes like health class yep. instead of sex ed, which parents can opt their kids out of. So even if parents find out, you know, and I had to really dig to find the actual curriculum themselves. And often the curriculum are like 90 to 100 pages long. And the actual stuff where they're saying, this is what we're going to teach first graders is buried on page 70. What parent has the time to dig through 100 pages of, you know, proposed curriculum to find that. Um, and often they don't even understand the difference between the health class or the sex ed class and what their rights are there. Well, hold that thought. We're talking to Ashley McGuire, author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female, and now I think you know why we've put her on. Again, we only talk about policy and these kind of things when it affects you at home. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. our American stories and we return with Ashley McGuire, author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. Let's dig into the book, Ashley. A lot of your book, well, it's about how various people and organizations have recently pushed for this gender equality as they define it. Can you tell us some specific stories like about the Seattle elementary school teacher who banned boys from playing with Legos? What was her reasoning? Well, yeah, you know, that, I think that's another example of a story that people sort of read and think, this sounds like a silly, isolated incident, and then, you know, until something like that shows up at their school, 
Um, but this was a an elementary school teacher who didn't like the fact that the boys played with Legos, the girls played with, you know, dolls and dress-ups in her class. And so she saw that as inequality. And what she did was decide that the way to fix this was to ban the Legos altogether. She couldn't get the boys to play, or the girls to play with the Legos. And, of course, the parents freaked out. And what's so interesting, I talk in the book about this, is that Lego actually found that um, the way to get girls to play with Legos is to create Legos that are designed just for girls. And I think a story that sort of embodies that, you know, if you're trying to make the outcomes as equal as possible, you have to understand and look at the differences and that boys and girls are looking for different things out of toys. And, you know, a study came out as I was writing the book, a big study um, that was done by people who were, you know, totally didn't have any sort of vested political interest in this debate in um, London. And they found that kids gravitate towards what we call gendered toys as young as nine months old, that nine-month-old babies, you know, a girl is more likely to gravitate towards like a little pot or a doll, whereas a boy might move more towards the truck or something like that. And, you know, at the same time with all these studies and examples, I think parents parents just sort of intuitively know this and have lived it out. I mean, not that every boy is playing with trucks and every girl is playing with dolls, but, I mean, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and he is, <laughs> my husband and I just sort of marvel at his obsession with machinery. And, you know, it's not like we did anything to particularly push it on him. He just was interested in it, just driving down the street in a way that my daughter never was. And so well, what these the authors of this study said is that this study shows that there's clearly something about our biology and our, you know, ch- the children's natures regarding toys that precede socialization. Because the other side will say, oh, well, girls are socialized to play with dolls and boys are socialized to be aggressive and, you know, physical And, again, I think sort of underlining that is this idea that there's something wrong with playing with dolls, that there's something flawed about sort of the more nurturing female nature, which I think is sort of sexist in its own way. Um, But, no, I think that's just one of many examples. You know, I talk about Target, the retail giant, which really sort of waded right into this debate and, um, you know, they've gotten a lot of attention for the way that they've they've now banned toys based on boy and girl. They've said people can use the locker room or the, the bathroom of their choice. Um, so I think these are ways that we're seeing this sort of ideology seep into every aspect of our lives, whether it's the toys our kids play with or, you know, where we shop. You can't really escape it. Now, to some degree, there may have been some socialization. I mean, I don't think we can think there isn't any. But they may be engaged in their own socialization experiment far worse and far more dramatic than earlier socialization that occurred through natural cultural choices and signals that we sent to young boys and young, young girls throughout the centuries. Talk about that, that competing idea of a social construct. No, I think that's a good point. You know, I think it's naive to say that, you know, there's no socialization at all. I mean, and you see it sort of across different cultures. And and this is actually when people talk about gender, what, you know, if they're being more scientific about it, what they're talking about are sort of the cultural 
um, norms, I guess, surrounding boy, girl, male, female. And, you know, sure, in some cultures, men wear dresses or skirts. Um, in other cultures, they wear suits and ties and vice versa. Um, that doesn't change the fact that they're male and female, and it certainly doesn't change certain immutable aspects about their maleness and femaleness, especially the obvious ones like, you know, the biological and reproductive rea- realities. Um, but I think you make a good point, too, though, about sort of a new socialization that we're embarking on, which is, you know, I think actually purposefully confusing to children. I mean, I, I genuinely think that whereas before, or, you know, we may have seen maybe a very you know, boys and girls were more directed towards one thing or another. Now we're actually seeing sort of a purposeful confusion with children about that. And, you know, people, I mean, I think we sort of lose sight of the fact that children are by nature a little bit confused about things, you know. And I think parents, you know, know that children are constantly peppering them with questions about, you know, why does mommy do this? Why does daddy do that? Or, you know, this is a thing for boys or this is a thing for girls. But um, I think purposefully sort of playing on that confusion is is a dangerous path to take with kids. And how do these ideas about gender equivalence, that there's no difference between males and females, play out a few years later on high school sports teams like a swim team in Massachusetts? Right. So this is one of the things I was talking about regarding Title IX. And this was actually one of the more sort of shocking things that I discovered in my research. You know, I think people have seen a a handful of these stories, including one that was sort of big news over this last weekend, about um, boys or girls who self-identify as members of the opposite sex and, um, you know, playing on teams of the opposite sex. But in fact, for, you know, more than a decade now, we've been seeing examples of Predominantly, I mean, when Title IX was written, it was written for girls to help create sports for girls. And what it said was if a school, if there's no team for the girls, the girl can play on the boys' team. But the school has to show that it's made a good faith effort for to create an equal number of teams for boys and girls. So, you know, they're probably not going to get a football team for the girls, in which case they really are required to allow the girl to play on the boys' team. But, you know, with other sports like soccer and basketball, they have to show they're investing resources equally in boys and girls soccer, boys and girls football. Um, But now what you're seeing is this totally sex-blind, gender-neutral interpretation of Title IX, such that if a boy says he wants to play on or compete with the girls, the courts and the athletic institutions actually can't tell him no. Um, because that's sort of the new way that they're interpreting discrimination on the basis of sex. And so I give a, some examples in the book. I give this example of a boy who competed in the girls' swim meet um, and broke the record, I believe, broke one or two records for the girls' swim meet. It was some sort of a district swimming competition um, and, you know, beat the girls, broke the record with a time that wouldn't have even qualified him to compete in the same meet with the boys. But really, what can anybody do when we're, you know, arguing that sex is a construct and that making distinctions between men and women and girls and boys is somehow not okay? Well, hold on, folks. There's more. We've got several more fascinating stories. This is coming to a school near you. Uh, No, I stand corrected. It's probably 
in a school near you. We're talking to Ashley McGuire, author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do and listen to all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org or go to iTunes. More with Ashley McGuire after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue the final segment in our hour-long conversation with Ashley McGuire, author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. Moving on a few more years to college, can you tell us the story, Ashley, of the time you were walking home at night as a university student and ran into four large men pushing a shopping cart? Yeah, I was walking home from a party late at night. I was by myself. Uh, Tufts was having a, a rape crisis, which I think is still sort of the case on a lot of these campuses, and I saw four enormous guys pushing a girl in a shopping cart, and she was completely blacked out, and to me, that little scene just sort of summed up what the sexual revolution, all of this sort of post-feminist world has done for women. Here was a woman, you know, in a cart, sort of objectified, like an item in a shopping cart, and for the men to do what they wanted with her. Unbelievable. And and by the way, I, I would assume, and I would love to see if there are any, any data on this, the amount of binge drinking women are doing is compared to men over the last 20 or 30 years. And did you find anything out about that? And, and, and if so, I'd be fascinated if you, if you do, or if you did, I'd love to know what you, what you might have learned. About binge drinking? Yeah, and just the, the way that I've seen, I mean, I'm on a campus town, we're here in Oxford, Mississippi, and it just stuns me the way the girls are drinking now, and they did not drink that way when I was in college. Well, I think this is a good example of, okay, girls are told, you've got to be able to do what the guys are doing. Well, it doesn't work that way for girls. Our bodies can't handle alcohol the way men's can. And guess what? When we're drunk, we are vulnerable in a way that men are not. And, you know, everybody wants to talk about the rape crisis on college campuses, um, but nobody wants to address the sources of the problem, which certainly binge drinking is a big part of that. But also, as I show in the book, so is co-ed housing. You've got 90% of dorms that are co-ed, many by floor, bathroom, and now by room. And then you've got something like 75 to 80% of sexual assaults on campus happening in the dorms. And, you know, it, it, this, of course, never countenances or excuses boys' conduct uh, because no. sexual uh, con- misconduct is sexual misconduct. 
But in the end, anybody who has a daughter is always telling them when they go out, don't drink too much, uh, be careful. And that's because there are predators out there. And if you're drunk, it's harder for you to figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And so I want to be clear as we're listening to this, that never do we blame the victim here, but we've got kids, we've got sons and daughters. And uh, I think that's a normal instruction the daughters, frankly, I, I, if I had a son, I'd be telling him not to get drunk in public either because you make all kinds of dumb decisions in your car and everywhere else. No, absolutely. And, you know, I completely agree that we have to be careful about um, in any way letting the blame fall on women. But I, I put the blame on the administrators of these universities who, rather than protect and put women into sort of settings where they're going to be protected from drunk male predators, they're doing, you know, like what Harvard, as I document in the book, did, which was to tell students, if you participate in any kind of a single-sex social club, you'll be punished. And so essentially what they did, I quote Naomi Riley, who said the, what the schools are telling young women now is to go where the rapes are. Instead of sort of trying to think through clearly how can we make women more safe on campus. They're telling women, you're going to be punished unless you go to the most dangerous place on campus, which is a co-ed dorm room. And, you know, when Harvard did this, they had women by the hundreds protesting the school's new policy and saying, you're taking away our safe spaces. And many of these women had been raped on campus. And by the way, they're creating all kinds of what I think are fake safe spaces from speech but not protecting the real safe spaces where the women and the boys can have some separation. By the way, I was a boy on campus, and I didn't want girls in my dorm. I just, you know, there's sometimes guys want to be left alone, but that's another, you know, that's another book. Let's talk a bit about the fascinating section where there are some traditionally masculine jobs like policing that women are just killing it at. They're excelling. Tell us more about that and tell us why. Well, this was another thing I found interesting. I, I, I was really interested in the whole sort of first responders, military, how do we handle sex integration in, in these various fields. And you know, it's more nuanced than just saying men are stronger than women. Um, you know, certainly like in firefighting and combat roles in the military, there's real reasons and real proof that show that, you know, Integrating sexually these um, jobs is not makes them less effective and often puts women in more danger. But on the other hand, um, I was really interested by policing and how studies are finding that women officers, especially because having a gun sort of puts you on the same um, equal footing with a predator or you know an assailant, um, that women actually have a very different approach to policing that in that they help de-escalate violence, um, they're way, way, way less likely to use excessive force, um, that can help sort of address some of these problems we're having with our police force today where there's so much tension, um, especially over endless documented cases of excessive police brutality. Well, we can prove that if you inject women with a lot of testosterone and you inject men with estrogen, that it changes the actual reaction to things. And, and, in, and this is not a surprise to me, Ashley, at all, uh, that, that finding. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, was, I was very interested, and even in my interviews with police officers and, and men in the military, they readily agreed that working with women officers is a delight and actually um, encouraged the recruitment of more police officers who are women. 
Yeah, and by the way, you had said that, you know, the gun is the great equalizer. I had a friend always tell me, who are you more afraid of, an NFL linebacker without a gun or a woman with a gun? And I think that he made his point. And I wanted to talk about Hollywood for a bit. You dedicate a section of your book to discussing gender and the entertainment industry. How do these issues play out there, and why does it matter to the folks listening? Well, I think Hollywood has a huge influence. We, can never, we cannot write off how influential Hollywood is on these broader policy debates. Um, and I think a few things. I think, one, Hollywood has really helped to mainstream a lot of what was sort of fringe conversation, even just a few years ago. Case in point, Bruce turned Caitlyn Jenner. Um, so you have that. And then I think you also have sort of this interesting example of an industry that is, you know, out of one side of its mouth, preaching at us constantly about gender equity, feminism, etc. And then they've got their own major problems with sexual harassment, discrimination against women. Um, you know, I talk in the book about just in the last few years, all these female big A-list named stars coming out and talking about being raped by men, being forced to do very degrading things for the industry. So I think that sort of shows how sort of fraught or conflicted um, that issue is when it comes to Hollywood. And then on the other hand, you've got Hollywood actually helping to reinforce the idea that sex really does matter. I give the example of John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, who, you know, were very open about the fact that they use sex selection um, with IVF to pick a girl and how important it was that they have a girl, which sort of contradicts a lot of what the rest of Hollywood is saying about gender as a fluid spectrum, it doesn't matter. And here they wanted us to validate for them that, yes, sex matters from conception, as they showed, um, and that it's important and, you know, permanent, lasting thing. And, by the way, the, the, the entire space of the Fifty Shades of Grey, where we started almost the conversation off, and how Valentine's Day has been turned into Sex Day on college campuses. You know, one of the best of people we had on the past year was a professor at Boston College who taught philosophy. But she was noticing that the three or 400 kids she taught, the young girls really were, they didn't look happy on Fridays, and a lot of times they were absent. And it turns out they hated the hookup culture of Thursday night. She started a dating class, Ashley. The first class had like 30 kids. The next class had like 60. And then 1,000. And it was all the wow. girls trying to take back their bodies, take back their power um, that in large measure had been surrendered to the Tinder culture, the hookup culture. And I think you'd be heartened to hear that story. But that's not a surprise to you, is it? No. And, you know, I think you're starting to see that happen. I think women are sort of leading the counter-revolution, if you will, to this um, sort of androgynous, sad androgeneity that we're, that's being forced on us because it's not serving us well. And I think, you know, that's a great example. I give examples of, you know, all these different sort of women-only things, the launch of women-only shared working spaces. Um, these are women who just who want to bring their babies to work. They want to have a nursing space. They don't want men flirting with them when they're trying to get their jobs done. Or women-only gyms because they feel uncomfortable exercising with men ogling them. Um, I think there's so many different examples of how even amongst all this androgeneity, women especially are leading a drive to sort of reclaim or take back 
their womanhood from a culture that's trying to deny it to them. And that's the best news. In the end, we really do have choices. And as much as some might try to superimpose an agenda on anybody, it's women are strong. And my goodness, women are smart. Ashley McGuire, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on today. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Ashley McGuire, author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. That sex scandal. Go to Amazon.com. Order it now. And again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.